Season three of The Fairer Sense is sponsored by FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software for freelancers. That's the easiest possible way to send invoices and stay on top of your accounting. Stay tuned for info on how you can get a free 30-day trial while supporting the podcast. Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. Today, women and financial advocacy. Hey, Tanya. Hey, Kara. How is it going over there in California? You know, just living the dream, MBD. MBD. <laughs> ah, we How's are it going for you? I mean, same. NBD all over the place. So, <laughs> I was thinking earlier today, like I haven't washed my hair in like four days. It's looking real shiny. <laughs> oh, I will fully confess that my favorite beauty product at the moment is dry shampoo. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That is like a, a life-changing invention that I wish had been around like my whole life. Yeah, I can't really use dry shampoo, which just feels awful because it feels like it was made for people like me, but it just makes my hair frizzier. So it's hmm. a really sad situation. Well, at least it's one less thing you have to spend money on, I guess. True. One less thing. Gives me more time to think about smashing the patriarchy and... <laughs> The downfall of systems I hate, which is sort of what we're talking about today. We're talking about women and financial advocacy, and we've got two really amazing financial advocates and just general advocates for women, one of whom is Mary Beth Cahill, who is the former executive director of Emily's List, which exists really to get more women elected to office. But she was also the campaign manager for John Kerry's campaign for president in 2004. So a giant of the political world, someone who I certainly was always aware of during my career. And my mom's college roommate. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that wild? Small world. And we're also going to hear from Gabby Dunn, who Kara got to talk to, who has the wonderful podcast, Bad With Money, and is just like an all-around awesome person fighting the good fight out there. Love Gabby. Huge fan of Gabby. When we talk about financial advocacy for women, to me, I think one of the things that we're really pushing up against and trying to make the conversation more intersectional and more all-encompassing of women of all income levels and all abilities and all immigration statuses and all sexual orientations is it does feel like throughout the course of history, the women who have been the strongest advocates have been what I'd call like the idle rich, you know, (laughs) the women who are like wealthy and had time to fight for this stuff or who could pay to have others care for their children so that they could run for office or they could do, you know, high powered work behind the scenes. So I love that we're going to hear from Mary Beth, who's kind of of the generation where women really did have to be rich to run for office. And then also Gabby, who is coming at this advocacy from like a completely different perspective of, hey, I'm right here with you and (laughs) I'm struggling with money too. And how, you know, how can we all get better together? It was such a joy to talk to both of these women and to hear their personal experiences and also their worldviews about where we are today and kind of how we got here and 
where we should go. It's always so refreshing to get out of your own echo chamber. I feel like I talk to a lot of millennials or Gen Xers. um, And so talking to people who are decades older than me or a decade or so younger than me, Gabby and I are actually very similar in age, but I love that. It helps you step outside of your own experience and your own beliefs. And that's something I very strongly believe in. I do think it's important to challenge your beliefs periodically and to say, oh, right, there are other people living in other ways. that made for such refreshing conversations. And when I think about where we are in the role of kind of financial advocacy right now, I think of us as financial advocates, Tanya, and I love doing the work we do, but what is the best way to do that work? How is the best way to deliver that work? What do you choose to advocate for and on? And what do you leave to someone else? When are you stepping over lines and when are you not? These are all things I ask myself. I mean, regularly. And it's all questions that any advocate has to ask themselves wherever they are. If they're a politician, if they are a private citizen, if you have a podcast, if you don't. And so that's some stuff that we're going to get into today that is, I think, really, really good food for thought for always. I almost want to just like get to the interviews. Should we do that? Should we get to the interviews? Let's get to the interviews. (laughs) All right, let's go. Beth is one of the most accomplished people that we've had on the podcast. She is the former director of federal state relations for the state of Massachusetts, the former head of office of public liaison for Bill Clinton, Ted Kennedy's former chief of staff, the former executive director of Emily's List. She ran John Kerry's presidential campaign, and she is currently at the DNC in charge of organizing the presidential debates for the 2020 election. So she is just killing it. And we talked about a lot of things. So here we go. I think a lot of people don't make the connection between elected officials and how they affect money. Can you talk about a policy that has direct impact on women's money? Well, there are two things that I I think are the most important here. One of them is that Nancy Pelosi held on to the fact that the Affordable Care Act had to pay for contraception. And a couple of times in the process of negotiating that bill, key members of the House, members of the Obama administration wanted to drop it out. And obviously that would have been an enormous expense for women in day-to-day health costs, but it would have been an even bigger repercussion in terms of their ability to hold on to their jobs and to live the life that they wanted to live. The second one is the Family and Medical Leave Act has had a big effect on women's lives. The ability to leave your job, male or female, to care for a member of your family has been a huge plus for women, I think. Those are two instances where government action and the legitimate economic needs of women have really intercepted. So you've worked at some of the highest levels of politics, and you've also worked in smaller races. Do you see a lot of women behind the scenes on campaigns? And what do you think women should do to get more into politics? And what do you think politics should do to make itself more welcoming to women? 
When I first started at Emily's List, there were only 12 women in the House of Representatives. And now, you know, there are going to be over 100. In every campaign that I've ever been in, the best volunteers, the most devoted people have been women. I think the difference is that within the campaigns themselves, women who might have had questions about their ability to influence a campaign are now holding their hand up and saying, I can do that. I should do that. I should be in charge. I think it's a real difference in in the posture of women, that they're just not going to be a volunteer, that they're going to be a field director, that they're going to be the communications director, that they're going to be the campaign manager. When I managed John Kerry in 2004, I was the only woman to uh, manage a major race that year. That's unimaginable in 2020, where I expect that there are going to be a lot of women campaign managers. That is a real change over the course of my lifetime. All of my female friends are really politically active, really politically woke and outraged at the fact that women aren't in more higher positions. Women are saying, I'm here and I'm going to do this job and you better get out of my way. It is great. And here in Washington, when you have a woman as the head of the the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, where you have a woman as the head of the Democratic uh, Governors Association, a woman as the head of the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, they picked up 347 seats across the country. That's a signature achievement. And Jessica Post is the young woman who, who stood up and led that charge. The DCCC, the Congressional Campaign Committee, was the only one this time around to be led by a very able man, Dan Senna. But things definitely are changing all around us. And that brings me back to how politics shapes our relationship with money and the country's relationship with money, really. Because even policies that don't directly have to do with money or income or pay have such a huge impact on people's lives, especially women's lives. To your point earlier, the ACA with birth control, such a huge impact on women's careers. Reproductive justice in general has such a major, major impact on women's lives and women's careers. So why do you think reproductive justice is so important for our world? And how do things like access to abortion and access to birth control affect both men and women's money? Well, I think the real difference is that between my generation, your mother's generation and yours, there's been a sea change in the fact that I think men realize that access to to reproductive justice affects them also, because increasingly income is family income. It's not just what the man makes and the woman stays at home. All members of a household support the household and the household's income. I think younger men realize that a lot more than older men did. And it's just baked in to voters under 30. The ability to decide when is a good time to take a maternity leave, the ability to decide when you're going to take time off to be with your family has everything to do with your ability to have a voice in your workplace. And that is something that that we are growing into. It's unfortunate that it's taken this long, but it is something that is demanded by younger voters and younger people. I do think it is a generational matter. And I I think that younger generations, you know, can't imagine a world where there isn't reproductive justice. And so we're growing into that slowly but surely. Do you think that we'll get to a point where there's things like federally subsidized childcare in the U.S.? I don't know. It does seem to me some things that seemed impossible. You know, when I worked for Senator Kennedy, he had been trying for over 40 years to enact health insurance, national health insurance. And so it took 
every bit of skill he had to to lead the way up to that by chipping away at it with things like chip that he worked really hard for to prepare the way. In our current administration, where there is so much antipathy to anything that smacks of European-style socialism, it's a hard thing. I do think, though, with all of these women in the House, there are going to be a lot of people who see the value in this. And I expect that we will see an increasing numbers of bills trying to lead up to that. I do know there's a huge hunger for it. As a woman who's been in a very male-dominated career, do you have any advice for women out there? Campaigns, unlike anything else, are a complete meritocracy. And if you walk in the door and you're confident and you think that you have a way to do something, you know, you almost always win. You rise very quickly in a campaign. People say... I don't know anybody. I am not in any way connected to the political process. Nothing makes less difference. You walk into a campaign office, they'll see what you do. And before you know it, you'll be taking off like a shot. I absolutely believe that has been my experience. I love a good side hustle. They're how I paid off my student loans and they'll always have a place in my heart. One of the cutest side hustles is dog walking or dog sitting or dog cuddling or anything to do with dogs, really. Rover is the largest network of five-star pet sitters and dog walkers in North America, and it's a great side hustle. If you want to make cash to pay off your debt or to pad your savings, visit rover.com slash cents and click become a sitter. Enter the fairest cents in the how did you hear about us box so they know you're a listener. Sitters with Rover set their own rates, hours, and the services they offer. Not into dog walking? That's cool. You can get into some doggy daycare action. Rover side hustlers use the app to get paid, communicate with pet owners, and are covered by the Rover Guarantee, which provides coverage in case some scenarios go a little sideways. Visit rover.com slash sense and click become a sitter, then enter your name, zip code, email, and password, and click get started if you're ready for an adorable side hustle. That's rover.com slash C-E-N-T-S. I also got to speak with Gabby Dunn, an actress, writer, podcaster, and all-around creative. Gabby hosts the podcast Bad With Money, which I love, and she is also the author of the upcoming book, Bad With Money. Actually, it's out now, which you should definitely get your hands on. It was an excellent read, and Gabby was amazing to speak with. I get some people who are frustrated because they think that my podcast takes like a victim mentality, which like comes up with whenever... There's feminism or or social justice elements to anything. I think I see that complaint a lot where it's like you're only a victim because you're making yourself a victim or like, you know, you're okay. So the system is is shitty, but, you know, you still should you should take care of yourself and stop worrying about other people because you can only take care of yourself and you can't fix the system. So you have to just make sure that you and your family are okay. That seems really cruel and weird stance to take. But yeah, so I think like, you know, it's a topic. Money is a topic where everyone likes to seem smarter than the next person. And I think when someone says that they're bad with money, which is the name of the podcast and also the name of my book, when you say that you're bad with money, people find that embarrassing and they don't really understand why I'm admitting to that. But then other people are like, thank you for being what I call relatable versus aspirational. There's nothing about my show or anything that I create that is aspirational. It's trying to come at it as a person who was where you are, is where you are, it remains where, I mean, I'm still, I still have 
student loans and credit card debt. And I, I have a hard time being like, I'm an expert because I'm certainly not. I'm just like talking about a thing. Well, and I loved that. So I loved how the first season was so personal and you were like, here's the conversations I've had with my comedy partner's dad, where he was basically like, I'll pay you to be my daughter's friend. <laughs> and you were like, I'm, I kind of need that money, but this is also weird. And you've been so candid about your family's financial history, as well as just kind of your family history. And but yeah, here you are with the book and the podcast. So how has all of your work in the finance space as it is a creative finance space, like how has that changed? How has it changed your world to step into the role as like a money advocate? I can't believe that this is what I do. I would never have guessed in a, a million guesses that this is what I was would be working on. But I learned that a lot of issues that I do care about come down to money. Like you mentioned on the show, the show has gotten a little bit broader where we talk about larger issues in, in, um, in terms of money and like focused on the money aspect of it. And, you know, I'm a queer woman and in the rallying cries for gay marriage, I hadn't really thought about the idea that gay people's retirement funds weren't being, weren't able to be left to their partner or that, you know, the cost of adoption or, uh, if you wanted to have a child or in vitro or whatever, like there were so many things that I do care about that are tied to money and money is so ubiquitous that like, even as a person who cares in the world, you kind of can't avoid it. I guess I don't have enough shame or maybe I do. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed all the time. Like I talk about all this stuff. I make all this stuff. I share all these things. And whenever somebody comes to me that says, Oh, I'm a fan of the podcast. I love the episode where you blank, blank, blank. I'm always like, I did what? Like, did I black out? Like I forgot, like, you know what I mean? I can't believe that I said that. Um, or I can't believe that I shared that. I can't believe that I called my student loan provider on air. I can't believe that I called Bank of America on air. So I try, I think I like do the show and then try to immediately forget what I just did so that I'm not like mortified. But that's the whole problem is like, nobody wants to talk about these issues because it's embarrassing. So then you become isolated. They get worse. You're alienated from your friends or peers who might be able to help you or give you advice. You feel like you're the only one struggling, which is so far from the truth. And especially with marginalized people, there's this uh, fake American ideal, particularly American ideal of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So uh, it's not that credit card companies are unfair to black and Latino communities. It's that you're not working hard enough. <laughs> only by remaining isolated under this like status quo and only by continually hearing this narrative of like being the one minority that gets out or whatever, do you like, do, do the people on the top continue to keep us at the status quo. And it benefits them to do so. I completely agree. I feel like I came out of the womb a feminist and being like, this is fucked up. That's not fair. Why is it like this? I feel like I've always been very aware of gender roles and the way race plays out in our society. But it wasn't until my mid-20s that I realized, oh shit, like so much of this is tied into money. I believe the first step to equality is really getting money into the hands of women and helping women understand money. I mean, at least until the revolution comes, you know, like I am all for the downfall of capitalism. But while we're living under it, <laughs> we have to we have to get money into the hands of people who have historically been marginalized from it. 
you become used to not having any. And then at least for me, when I made even a little bit, it was massively confusing. I wanted to have money because I was so sad. And people like, I think people who have always sort of been comfortable don't realize how devastating it is to be poor. Like it's just like an emotional, you're just sick. Like it's just like so makes you feel really, really hopeless about everything. And then, you know, you, at least I would try to have little indulgences, you know, that like human beings need to get through the day. And then I would just berate myself. And so it's hard to come to people and preach financial literacy when you know that there are larger things at play. So I always struggle with like, how much do I give personal finance and actual tips, which I've had listeners say, we want more of that versus do I expose more systemic problems, which like other listeners like. So it's hard because I have had people say, oh, we want more how to save and how to start a retirement fund and how to blank, blank, blank. But then I also have people who are like, I don't even have a dollar to start a retirement fund. So I'm trying to talk to both sides. Whereas like, I think a lot of finance gurus are like, just sort of coming at it from like, here's a middle-class person who's made a mistake versus like an actual low-income person, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh my God. That is also my struggle with my company. You have to try and be specific, but not too specific. And you're trying to speak to this community, but also you're trying to speak to an individual and it's, (laughs) it's really hard. One thing that really struck me, and this is in season one of the podcast is, uh, my friend Carrie Wade, who's a disability advocate, was talking to me about, I was talking about saving and she said, well, you know, disabled people aren't allowed to save more than $2,000. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, if you save more than $2,000, your benefits are cut. And that's why a lot of disabled people don't get married. And I was like, holy shit. This is the type of thing where if you're a finance guru and you're going online being like, by 35, you should have this much money. You're like not taking into account that there's like a large group of the people in the world who like legally cannot do that. And so I think like there's just a very narrow focus on like individualism versus, hey, maybe we should fix this law that's been in effect since the 80s. God, yes. Amen. (laughs) We get a lot of that feedback too of people who are like, oh, I want more specific advice when we talk about bigger picture stuff. But personally, I believe we can't give everyone the same advice and specifically men and women the same money advice because everyone's circumstances are different. Like women are up against the wage gap. Men are not. Race and gender and um, sexuality and class, all of it is not really taken into account in a lot of financial advice. As a queer woman, do you think that there's anything specific to the queer community that the personal finance gurus leave out? The cost of obtaining a child. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think is more, okay, so like healthcare for trans people, right? Like it's not included in a lot of insurance And it should be, but that's not something that like the LGBTQ community fights for as much in general, like, you know, the huge push for gay marriage, which like obviously was very important, especially like after the AIDS crisis where like a lot of people were left destitute because they couldn't get access to their partner's pensions or money or, or home or anything because they weren't legally married. I think the LG part of it doesn't fight as hard for the T part. And so there's like a whole, you know, I mean, trans women have a very small life expectancy. Trans women of color are make the least amount of money, have, are least able to like hold down jobs that are, you know, taxable, let's say income. They are more prone to domestic violence and sexually based violence and stuff like that. And, and I think all of that has to do with money. And like, you know, there's something to be said about financial abuse. 
which is where one partner is beholden to the other partner for money and for a place to live and for food and everything. So they just put up with poor treatment. And we don't talk about that as much because it's not as like cute of a thing as gay marriage. And it's not as easy for straight people to understand. I think there's a lot in the queer community that we do to try to get straight people on board with. And then we don't, we leave out other like uglier parts because straight people might be like, oh, I don't know about that. But like, you don't have to know about it. You just have to like help and respect it. Um, And so I think a lot of financial gurus like are only speaking to straight people, even like with retirement, I talked to these guys that do a podcast called Queer Money. And they were saying that they worked in the financial world for a long time and that there was so much marketing money, but they never used any marketing money to market retirement to LGBTQ couples. Like if you look at commercials on TV, if you're watching like Oxygen or Lifetime or whatever during the day, like I am, then you see all these commercials that are for like retirement, right? But like, have you ever seen one that markets to a gay couple ever? The assumption is that they don't have the disposable income. So it's not marketed to us. So we don't think about it. Is there ever been a retirement commercial with a trans person in it? I don't think so. Because the expectation is they won't live that long. Stuff like that is just kind of brushed under the Uh, rug. Yes, I completely agree. And Damn, that's some like hard hitting words. Like the expectation is they won't live as long. So why save? Why have retirement? Their life expectancy is 35. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also goes back to the, you can't be what you can't see, whether even just ages into that, or if no one ever says like, oh, well, I'm a retired trans person and you don't see it on TV, you don't hear it on the radio. Like, why would you ever think that could be you? Of course. And there aren't that many LGBTQ financial advisors. There are some. So it helps for queer people to go to queer financial advisors, just like it helps for black people to go to black financial advisors, just because they might best understand your life. A big thing that we focus on in the show is sharing other women's stories. And so I want to ask you, how can women advocate for other women? Like what is a good way for women to stick up for each other? And who do you think is doing a good job of that right now? Who do you admire out there? Who's a lady that you're like two thumbs up? I think boosting voices. And I also think, I mean, there's tangible things you can do. Like you have to get outside, talk about money stuff with your friends. It's uncomfortable, but like even at your job, where was a day where at my old job where we all shared our salaries and it like actually helped people realize what they could ask for. Like it made me furious. So I realized like one of the guys was getting paid like $50,000 more than me just because he asked, you can like actually just do that with each other, with the people that you trust at your job, with the other women at your job or the other queer women at your job or the other black women at your job or the other, you know, Latino women at your job. So I'm just like really all for transparency because I think it allows everyone to be working from a place of what they're worth. As for people that are doing a good job, I like this writer named Talia Jane who writes a lot about money. My friend Stevie Bobby did an amazing video on her YouTube channel for homeless youth about like tips for homeless youth that is very, very real. She was homeless as a kid. So like not condescending, not and I mean, it's just a beautifully done video. I think like Phoebe Robinson has been posting a lot of amazing stuff. I think everybody would do well to look at and read. Running a business of one means you wear many hats. Marketer, content creator, CEO, office custodian. There are many things that demand your attention and you need all the assistance you can get. 
That's why cloud accounting software FreshBooks is so cool. They take the work out of getting paid so you can focus on doing the work you need to keep your business running. With FreshBooks, you can create a customized invoice, track all your income, and link a business credit card to automatically track business spending. FreshBooks makes it super simple to do your accounting. The website is clean and easy to understand, and it makes accounting one less thing that you need to worry about as a business owner. Most accounting services come with lots of bells and whistles that you don't need as a freelancer, and FreshBooks cuts all of that out to make it as easy to use as possible. We've both used it and can attest to it being the easiest possible way to do your accounting, and maybe the prettiest. Plus, FreshBooks has recently gotten into the events game, which you know I love, with their hashtag I make a living events around the US. They talk to freelancers and small business owners about how they make a living, which is something that we both think is pretty cool. Head to freshbooks.com slash TFC to claim your 30-day free trial and enter the fairer sense in the how did you hear about us section. It's a win-win. You get something free while supporting the fairer sense. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks already. That's freshbooks.com slash TFC. In your conversation with Mary Beth, it definitely struck me, you know, there have been so many great champions of women over time. And we now, with the last election happening, have more women in Congress than ever before, which is certainly a good thing. But it's very interesting to observe how kind of the era of Nancy Pelosi or like thinking about the California's senators, there was a long time when we had two women senators, Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein. And now we have Dianne Feinstein still, but Kamala Harris, who, oh my God, I love her, such a girl crush on Kamala. But it was definitely very wealthy women kind of speaking for all women and mostly wealthy white women speaking for all women. So it's nice to see that pool of women who are especially at the federal policy level advocating for us really broaden. I think that one of the the things I'm really hopeful for is that we're going to see a broadening of the issues. So women's issues aren't just family and medical leave, paid maternity leave, and contraception, that we see more issues. We see things involving the criminal justice system. We see things involving welfare system and harassment. And I mean, it's just like it's a long list of stuff that I think has not been as central to the conversation about what women need from policy as it could be. So I'm just I'm filled with hope that we're moving in a good direction there. Yes. Something that really struck me about speaking with Mary Beth is the major impact that politics can have on women's lives. Obviously, I knew that going into it, but the advocacy of women in the government for other women is huge. It cannot be overstated. And what's amazing about that is the more women we get into the government, hopefully the better off all women will be. But what's frustrating about it is how it moves at this glacial pace. Because, you know, to just get into the government is a whole journey. And then once you're there to get your legislation enacted and then to have it actually go into action is it's a very long process start to finish. And so that's something that can have such a huge impact, but that takes so long. And so for someone like me, that's frustrating. But her points about the FMLA Act and the ACA and the impact that that has had on men and women's lives. I mean, it's really true. I personally had to cut this out of my interview with Mary Beth, but there was a time where I was uninsured for about eight months and I had to pay for my birth control out of pocket. And T-Bone and I split that because it was a pretty high cost. It wasn't a high cost, but it was it was a cost and I was hella broke. So it felt like a lot to me at the time. And then getting on the ACA eliminated that cost. That was such a relief for my teeny tiny budget at the time. So that was so 
I mean, it was immediate action in my life, right? And that came out of a government policy. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I can say from having been on the other side of that, of, of working with clients who were really trying hard to push that, I mean, it took for freaking ever to get healthcare reform. I mean, you, you remember, well, maybe you don't care because you're young, but older listeners will remember after Bill Clinton was elected and Hillary Clinton took that on of trying to make healthcare happen in the early 90s. And it took until 2009, right? So that and even still, we're still legislating it like it was struck down by the Texas judge in December. It's like, oh, God, it's never settled. So yeah, to your point and to Mary Beth's point, it's Politics is really, really a long game, and it's so important and so essential to our lives, but it's just never going to happen at the pace that people want, and that especially we want. We want to, like, smash down all those old structures now, but, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, and Mary Beth's point, she spoke a little bit about her work with Ted Kennedy and how much time, years, he spent on universal health care, and, yeah, I mean, it truly is, it, like I said, glacial, but hugely impactful when it does go through, whether for positive or negative. And I also was really struck at Mary Beth's comments. It made me think about episode four when we talked with Gemma Hartley about emotional labor and how she sees a division between millennial and Gen X men when it comes to emotional labor. And Mary Beth's point of how she feels like men in a younger generation are more involved in things like reproductive justice and reproductive access because it is impacting their lives. And they're coming at this from a financial standpoint. Oh, if my wife or my partner has to take time off to care for our child and she's not compensated for that in any way, that impacts the household bottom line. And so that is something that I have never really considered before. And I truly hope that more men will join us in the fight for equal pay and for paid parental leave because it is not just, I really hate this idea, like it's a woman's issue. So women have to advocate for it. No, as we've said before, we are out here advocating for it, but it really does involve getting men involved in this fight for true justice. Yeah. And and when women earn more, that means families earn more, which usually involves men. So it's it seems like such a no brainer. Gemma Hartley, by the way, will be back on the show this season to talk more about emotional labor, which I'm super excited about. But I loved how Gabby in your chat with her talked about how the money advice that's out there is really not geared toward poor people. And it's often very bad for poor people. I think for those who haven't read it, Linda Torado's book, Hand to Mouth, is a really illuminating look at the finances of poverty and what it's like to kind of manage your money as as a poor person. And I think there's so much in there that is just, if that's not you and that doesn't speak to your life experience that I think is important to see. But yeah, it, there's just so much in that that kind of triggered this stuff for me of having blogged for a long time in the financial independence and early retirement space where I think most people acknowledge there we're not really talking to poor people folks, like we're talking to people who have wiggle room in their budget and can make that wiggle room bigger. But even then, it's crazy how much arrogance there can sometimes be. And folks saying like, well, I'm an expert because I did this and just happened to get lucky. They never say that last part. They don't acknowledge that part. But I'm an expert and here's the one way you do it and anything else is wrong. Even even for like non-poor people, it's crazy how much advice is out there that's very like one size fits all and I'm the expert and people wanting to make themselves the experts. There's, there was just so much in that where I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, Gabby killed it. And her point was so well taken. You know, she really spoke about how she feels a responsibility to speak to lower income and poor people because so much of the financial advice is given to middle and upper class people. And it just 
doesn't even take into account people who are making less than 20 grand a year. I mean, they just get ignored. And it's like, we need the most help. Where Where is the direction? Where is the advice? You're just going to leave us out in the cold. Her point about how legally disabled people cannot save more than $2,000 has really stayed with me. I knew that going into the episode, but it's such a good point. I mean, if you're up against this law, what do you do? And the experts, the gurus, they're just not talking about it because there is no easy answer. Or the answer is change the law, which as we talked about earlier, it's hard to change laws. But that's something that I think about all the time because so much of the work that I think we try to do on this podcast and I try to do in my personal life is to get people to challenge existing systems. People think it's the way it is currently it cannot be changed about so many things like, well, it's just the way it is. So I just have to accept it. And we put as a society, we put the onus on the individual to change themselves rather than taking a step back and saying, hey, this system isn't working. What if we change the system? What if we make a new law? What if we bump that up from 2000 to $10,000? What would that look like? And people immediately meet that with defensiveness or fear. And it's like, let's just expand our options here, folks. Like, let's just think about this in a new way. That's how I come at it. I'm like, why can't we just, let's just challenge our thinking on this. And Mm -hmm. so many people, nah, they're just nah. kind of a problem that we have broadly across society, which is we want to think of things as either or or black or white instead of acknowledging nuance or acknowledging that there is often like a vast, vast gray area. And the stuff about Gabby's been criticized for having a victim mentality by wanting to talk about the system and how messed up the system is and how it holds a lot of people back. I mean, we get that same critique on this show of, well, you're not helping people. You're not giving investment advice. You're giving uh, advice on how we change the system. And so why don't we embrace personal responsibility instead? It's like, I don't think we or Gabby are saying that none of us are responsible for our own lives or our own choices. We're just saying that a lot of people don't have the the freedom to make the same choices as others because of things in the system. And so why don't we work to change that by advocating, you know, for women and their finances so that it is more of a level playing field in terms of the choices people are able to make? Because I think it's so easy to just be in our own bubbles, our own echo chambers and assume like everyone's got the same menu of options in front of them. They're just making bad choices. Like, no, tons of people don't even have those options. So why don't we work to give them to them? I remember that we got some feedback from someone who she felt like we were a bit negative. And I was like, I don't think that pointing out the problems is negative. And then I remember I got into the fight on Twitter with this dude who was like, you just want to play the victim. You just want to point out the bad, 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 bad. But where are you coming in? What actions are you taking? And I was like, bro. Like, you want to talk about the work I've done? I got you. Like, we can go toe to toe on putting in the hours of literal hard work um, to change your life. Again, I just want, I want the conversation to be shifted to reframe to how can we just zoom out? Why are we so hyper-focused on the individual in the United States? There is this myth of American meritocracy, the best rise to the top and the bootstraps mentality. The bootstrap story is the truest story. And it's like, Nothing could be further from the truth, first of all. And me pointing that out, it's not an attack. It's certainly not me trying to devalue the hard work you have put in. It's just a question of we're living in a system that doesn't work for so many people. What if we made the system work for more people? I mean, as we talked about in way back in season one, when we talked about privilege, like it's such a loaded thing where people feel like any 
acknowledgement that the system is broken or that the system doesn't work for everyone somehow entirely negates all their accomplishments. And that's just not true. That's that's very much the either or thinking instead of the and thinking of like, yeah, you worked hard and accomplished these things and other people may not be able to do the same thing by taking the same steps. Like, that's just true. <laughs> that's yeah. not that's not like a political statement. That is just reality. And so I think advocating for women and women's finances very much means we've got to be very clear eyed about the world and what a lot of women are up against, not just the rich white ones, but all of the women in different stages of life and different income levels and different skin colors and different orientations. I just I love that we've got women who are out there fighting that fight, but we need to have more of us out here. Yeah. And to your point about the the experts and to Gabby's point about the gurus, if you're labeling yourself an expert and you are not trying to cast a wide net over the advice that you can give and the problems that you think you can help people solve, you're not a very good expert in my opinion. And I feel like if you're going to go up here and be like, I accomplished this amazing feat, thus it makes me an expert on this topic. You better come correct, son. Like I want to see the research. I want to see that you can replicate that given circumstances outside of the ones that you existed in. And if you cannot do that, or if you get angry and push that away, you're not a very good expert. God, amen. And then you've got people like Gabby, who I think has has come from a different place. You know, she didn't grow up wealthy and has, has had to really like struggle to learn a lot of this stuff. And then even as knowledgeable as she is and as much as she's accomplished, she still doesn't call herself an expert. So I think we need more people like that. We need people who've come from more hardship, more real hardship to be teaching us and to be elevating their voices. And so I think we've been doing that, but I think we need to do that even more here. And I think encourage others to join us in elevating the voices of those who haven't come from such a place of privilege and have overcome it and learned whether or not they call themselves an expert. Let's not just look to people who slap that label on themselves. I would love to share these women's stories on the podcast. So share those stories with us. You can always email us fairsense at gmail.com or tweet at us at fairsense. Y'all know, those of you who've been listening, you know, we love to share the stories that folks aren't hearing. And I think this is such a big category for that of the people who have really learned their knowledge the hard way and have not just necessarily been able to take the cookie cutter expert advice and have still managed to thrive. I feel like that more hard earned knowledge is more valuable, frankly. So we want to hear more of it and share more of it here. So obviously we covered a lot. We feel really passionately. And if you feel really passionately about the work that we're doing here on the show, please leave us a review. They help us so much. And they also mean so much to us. I know we say this every time, but it's really true. So you can just tap the stars if you think we deserve that. Or if you want to leave us a little review on iTunes, we love to get them and they do help the show. They help us keep doing what we're here to do. If you feel some warm fuzzies after listening and you want to return that favor, I will say writing a review is pretty much the best thing you can do because we, we look at every single one, we read them, we share them, and they just make us feel really, really good about what we're doing here. So thank you to all of you who've left reviews. Gosh, I mean, we just, they mean so much. Thank you. Well, until our next world-changing episode, <laughs> I just, just want to say to you, to all our listeners, stay rad. Stay rad. Stay rad.
the Fairer Sense are Kara Perez and me, Tanya Hester. Editing by me. Our theme song is by The Insider. All other music appears courtesy of the generous and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you need music to license for your podcast or other project, check them out at breakmastercylinder.bandcamp.com. You can always find me at ournextlife.com and Kara at bravelygo.co. Personal giant. Ugh, let me start that again. Wow. <laughs>